2: is the Tom Hartman program. On the line with us is Congressman Ro Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, representing the 17th District of California. Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is his website. Rep Ro Khanna on Twitter and he will be with us taking your calls in a progressive town hall meeting. Congressman Khanna, welcome back. What's on your mind today?
3: We were just with the Poor People's Campaign. Reverend Barber has been in Washington is going to have a big march, actually, to focus on the things that we still haven't done, even with two chambers of uh, Congress and the presidency, oh, increasing the weight, you know? Yeah, yeah. He, he's For a
2: regular example. on this program. We should have we should have gotten him on. I'm. Forgive me, I interrupted you. Continue.
3: It's things that are so basic. Increase the minimum wage. I mean, the, the wage is stuck at $7.25. One of One of the things he said, which really resonated with me, is we ought to be voting on a $15 wage every week. I mean, the Republicans vote on repealing the Affordable Care Act every week. I mean, we need to have the same intensity. We need to vote on providing people with health care, having Medicare for all. We heard from a young person that stuck with me, whose grandfather, a veteran, basically died because he couldn't get access to mental health care in this country. So I think that Reverend Barber has one of the strongest moral voices in this country. And one of the remarkable parts of his coalition is it's white, black, Latino, Asian, really the multiracial coalition that Dr. King envisioned with Dr. King's famous speech, of course, in Montgomery, where he said that Jim Crow is something that the Southern aristocrats feed to poor white Americans to try to distract them from the economic issues. And Reverend Barber is really carrying on that legacy
2: yeah it's it's and it's an important legacy and and he's such a good guy malcolm in bluebell pennsylvania you are on the air with congressman connor
4: regarding the january 6th committee being kind of split on if they would actually send over a criminal referral it's pretty tough to keep people energized and tell us to get out and vote when politicians continuously you know get away with defying subpoenas and everything else
3: i think jamie raskin had it right where he said that the entire Hearing is basically a referral to the Justice Department. Congress doesn't formally refer things uh, uh, for criminal prosecution, but th- there's no doubt that the Justice Department is watching and they're laying out the evidence, and there has to be accountability. And so I think that the committee has struck the right tone.
2: Morris in Long Beach, California, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
3: Oh, Congressman, Congressman, check this out. I know how to
5: address inflation. I know how to address inflation. Remember when former President Nixon was dealing with the same issue, he froze wages, he froze prices. I'm thinking that the President Biden can issue an executive order telling all the oil companies that they can no longer sell oil overseas, just like we can't sell stuff to Cuba. Can't sell all that stuff's got to be
3: sold right here because they make more money when they sell overseas. What do you think of that idea? I support it 100 percent. Jack Reed and I called to do this six months ago. And people say, oh, you're disrupting the market. People weren't allowed to sell oil overseas until 2015. And we ought to ban the exports, at least temporarily, while we are in a a national emergency. That would help sever the price of the United States from the global market. People say, well, we only get get a disproportionate amount of light shale oil here, and our our refineries are more geared towards crude oil. Uh, We can uh, fix that. We could have a one-to-one exchange on that. Anyway, the point is, a lot of economists have looked at this and say it would bring down gas prices. I just had a meeting with the White House yesterday pushing for it, and they're saying they're considering it, but it's it's time to do it.
2: Wow. Are you and Jack Reed putting together the legislation to do this, or is this something that can be done by executive order?
3: This is something that the president could do. I mean, we're going to put legislation as well, and, and we have a letter to the president. The president has the authority, at least for... A temporary period to suspend the fuel. Now, the White House was saying, well, what about some of our European allies? They can have carve outs. They can have exemptions. But do we really need to be selling oil right now to China, to other countries in the uh, in, in the world? I mean, I, I think right now having a temporary ban on the export." would be the single biggest thing this president and we can do to lower gas prices
2: yeah i you're singing my song i in fact i think i pitched that to you last week or the week before amen
3: yeah you know i know you've been on board with it but yeah. you know the interesting thing is sheldon whitehouse and i did the windfall profit tax and uh taxing big oil, and jack uh, reed and i did this export ban and now the white house is at least considering it we but we need to act we can't just do nothing
2: yeah amen david in columbus ohio you are on the air with representative connor
1: i really appreciate your efforts to uh, cut back on defense i also appreciate your efforts to cut price gouging I think the Defense Department has been price gouging us for whatever, 50 years. So I I think uh, we need to look at that. And I don't know if you have any new bills on this. I'd be glad to promote this with my representatives and my senator. I think uh, the problem is is uh, nuclear power and nuclear weapons have been linked too much, and they're, they're killing us at the state and federal level. It's not just that the... Defense Department is
3: bloated. It is that the money is going to defense contractors and defense executives in many cases that are lining their pockets and have nothing to do with national security. I led the Transdime investigation that showed that Transdime was ripping off the American taxpayers millions and millions of dollars because they were overcharging for supplies thousand times more than what it cost. When they were basically sole providers, so I had sole contracts. So we need to reform the entire procurement process, not allow for these sole contractors without price transparency, uh, and really root out the giveaway to defense contractors in the defense budget.
2: Robin in Boulder, Colorado, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
6: Here's a thought that I have, and actually it's more of a question. Now that uh, Republicans are getting a rudimentary education on how the Constitution works and the limited powers of the vice president when it comes to counting electoral votes, Congressman, do you have any concern that this issue is going to be next on the right-wingers' hit list? Is trying to get that part of the Constitution changed so if they don't like the results of the Electoral College they, you know, the vice president will have the power to pick the president. And I will hang up and just listen to your call.
2: And I'll add to that, that Congressman Connor that just uh, two weeks ago, I got an email from Freedom Works. I'm on their list, saying that they had suggestions to reform the Electoral Count Act. So, your thoughts?
3: Well, this is the big concern. I mean, they don't have to amend the Constitution to give the vice president more power. They're trying under the current rules to rig the game by electing governors and secretary of state and all these swing states who are basically going to be committed under the Constitution to electing Donald Trump. You know, I was having conversation with one Republican congressman who said that the Constitution literally says, as he reads it, that a state legislature or state can flip a coin to determine who they should vote for for president and that there is no obligation for them to follow the election results. If this is the interpretation, and if you elect governors and secretary of states that are loyal to the party within the system, basically someone become president who doesn't win the popular vote, the Electoral Count Act reform is so important because it would stop that by saying that courts have to review any time a state sends delegates that are different than the popular vote winner. And we still haven't been able to pass that through the Senate.
2: I think your Republican Congressman is right. The Constitution says it very clearly that the state legislatures can decide which electors they're going to send. They choose to send the electors based on the election that they hold in their states, but they don't have to. We should fix yeah, that. Uh,
3: th- <laughs> we do. And the Electoral Count Act, the interesting thing is that the states all have laws in the state saying that they will respect the popular vote winner right. for who they send. And what the Electoral Count Act says is you can't just retroactively get rid of that state law. And it will be hard for a state legislature to pass a law saying let's ignore that before the election. So it's a well-worded statute, but it does no good if it's just caught up in the Senate.
2: Yeah, there you go. Susan, in Phoenix, Arizona, you are on the air with Representative Khanna.
6: The feds are raising the rates, interest,
1: and I think all that's gonna do is benefit the pay cash investors. But Obama had a plan where he gave $5,000 to new first-time home buyers,
3: but an even better plan was, believe it or not, President Reagan, which I
6: took advantage of. He had it that any foreclosed home could only be, um, any, the only ones to put, be able to put a bid on it, they had to qualify low income. And all the bank could ask was what was owed on the property. Um, so is there any chance we could do something like that? <laughs> Thank you.
3: It's an interesting suggestion. I, I didn't know about that program that President Reagan had, and I'm happy to look into it. But I, I agree with you in two points. One we have to figure out how to increase home ownership. It stayed about 65%, and home ownership is the biggest way that you increase wealth in this country. And two, that we made a mistake by having so much of our policy focused on bank bailouts and not uh, on helping people uh, whose homes were being foreclosed on. And so if there are any policies that would help actually target the money towards people who are either facing foreclosures, uh, threat of foreclosure, or have at foreclosure, uh, that would be my uh, preference.
2: Susan in Seattle, you're on the air with Representative Connor. H.R.
6: 4853, which <coughs> excuse me, uh, would require the FDA to put, implement regulations within about a two-year period for home health care devices uh, that are would be non-visual accessible. Um, things like blood pressure cups, CPAP machines, um, monitors for diabetics or chemo monitors, which would allow uh, blind people to be able to stay in their home and in their community. And I know from talking to many of my friends, we're all very concerned about the proposed um, cuts to Social Security and Medicare and um, to be able to, you know, even... Stay in our homes and take care of ourselves, and not be a burden to our family and friends. And my question is: I know that many times when bills are introduced, you tuck them into other must-pass bills. And if you could look into it and maybe help us, must uh, put it into some must-pass bill like the Defense Department that nobody questions.
3: Susan, I appreciate that. I will look look at that. I mean, first we need to be very clear that we shouldn't have any cuts to social security or medicare we need to be increasing those benefits but i got concerned when the republicans are saying if they take back the house or senate they want biden to start a simpson bowles like commission that was a terrible idea during the obama years and that commission was basically going to gut social to cut social security when we need to be increasing it in terms of uh, funding for the type of equipment and services that you talk about for people of need uh, I am for increasing that funding.
2: Rodney, in Sioux City, Iowa, you are on the air with Representative Connor.
7: What are the three unifying points from the DNC? We do not have direct messaging, health care for people of color and poor people is terrible. Public education is a total failure. And housing. I mean, if we don't have three core values that we stand for, Republicans, they're going to clean our clocks come midterm.
3: Well, Ronnie, I, I think you'd be hardened by Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign. This is his message, that there are 140 million Americans who are poor or low wealth, and we need to meet their needs. And I think the three points ought to be, well, let's increase our wage, have a livable wage, make sure we have Medicare for all, health care for uh, everyone, uh, and then housing, uh, making sure that everyone has uh, adequate housing and some path to, to home ownership. So, those are the core values, and, and we need to keep fighting for them.
2: Nancy in Chenowah, correct me if I'm saying it wrong, Nancy, Washington, you're on the air with Representative Connor
6: what about uh doing clubhouse programs for uh mentally ill people will help get them off the street they gently coax people into working full-time jobs and they supply housing for them and also there's adult foster care because there's a lot of homeless people that are just mildly mentally disabled And sometimes there's literacy problems. And so why can't we do more of that instead of just trying to move them on, which doesn't work because then they wind up in tent cities?
3: Nancy, you're absolutely right that we need to have far more support services for people. Mental health being available, it's one of the biggest problems that many of our fellow citizens don't have access to the basic uh, mental health care that they need. For others, what we need is uh, a harm reduction for those with substance problems and how we actually get them to, uh, to turn around their lives. Uh, but just putting them in a housing or a shelter is not going to solve uh, the issue. And, and we're uh, pound, uh, uh, you know, petty wise and pound foolish in, in some of our policies.
2: Dennis in Aptos, California, you're on the air with Representative Connor. I would think that the funding for the Ukraine right now
8: uh, shouldn't be coming out of the seized assets of Russian oligarchs. So that's my number one question. I have another question, though, and it's this. Why aren't the Democrats using national security as a reason to vote Democrats, keep them in power in the House and the Senate, And this would be in regards to gun safety, in regards to the health of of the people of this nation with the pandemic, and uh, point the finger at corporate America and accuse them of price gouging, especially big oil. There should be ads running 24-7 doing just that.
3: I agree with you. I was on CNBC this morning making that exact case. I mean, big oil is... Uh, engage in total uh, uh, price gouging. They're getting these record profits, and they're giving it all the way to Wall Street. It's not like they're drilling more or investing in refineries. And we need to be more aggressive a- 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 in going after them. We need to pass Sheldon Whitehouse and my bill, the, uh, the windfall profits tax, and get that money back to the American consumer. Boris Johnson passed it in England, the Conservative government. So either uh, we're going to get aggressive, or Uh, price gouging and and, uh, go after some of the corporate price gougers uh, or uh, we're going to be in a defensive posture come the midterm elections.
2: Catherine in Medford, Oregon, you're on the air with Representative Connor. I had a lot of thoughts about student loans and exploding balances
1: and I had an idea. Even if all student loans are forgiven, future generations will still be prey to predatory lenders. So my thought is to put a limit on the um, time of a student loan, everyone goes on an income-based repayment, and then let's say it's 10 years. Well, every year the total balance is reduced by a tenth until the balance is zero. And that way, I think there would be less resistance from other people who say, well, I paid off my loans, why can't you? And it'll prevent that continual predatory um, stance that that are going against uh, students.
3: Let me tell you, as someone who took out $100,000 of student loans and and paid them back, I have absolutely no resentment for other people who may have taken out loans and uh, need to have them forgiven. I just think I was one of the fortunate ones in society, but I have a lot of friends and others who didn't get the same uh, same breaks. But my view of it is uh, forgive the loans at least for people who are middle class and working class. Uh, And, by the way, it's not the rich or the upper middle class are taking out these loans. It's people coming from working in middle class families. Uh, And then you you need, to your point, you need to have some free public college so that you don't have a perpetual cycle of people continuing to take out these loans. Uh, And that, I think, is the, the, the best way of solving the issue.
2: Nancy in Woodland, California, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
6: Yeah, I understand that the U.S. Postal Board is uh, doesn't have the votes to get rid of um, DeJoy, but why can't he just be removed by the president or Congress or somebody based on his financial conflicts of interest?
3: That's it's a good point. I mean, I, I assume that Congress may have the power of impeachment. I don't, I don't know how. I haven't looked into that, because obviously the board has that power. I don't think the president does, because I think it's semi-autonomous. But it is worth looking into whether Congress— has that power. At the very least, we ought to be doing hearings on it uh, to, to put, expose uh, the type of conflict and corruption that he has.
2: Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to CookUnity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from CookUnity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro-kitchens, not large production facilities. That's 50% off your first week by using the code HARTMAN or going to cookunity.com slash HARTMAN. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever,
1: or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild.
5: Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's
1: joy in every journey.
2: And welcome back. Michael in Fairview, Michigan. You're on the air with Representative Conrad.
8: Is it going to be some indignant attitudes from the Democrats when they find out about the Supreme Court's wife being sadistic like she is? I mean, it would be nice to see some outrage.
2: When are Democrats going to start bringing up the topic of Jenny Thomas? It seems like there should be some outrage around uh, her ah, participating in the January 6th riot.
3: We have been pushing that. Obviously, you saw that the January 6th committee has brought that to light and my anticipation is we're going to have congressional hearings on that conflict because we need a code of ethics for the supreme court justices without conflicts of
2: interest patrick in east lansing michigan you're on the air with representative connor representative
1: connor we really appreciate what you've been doing with the progressive caucus i i have a question about the child tax credit and the story i want to tell you is on the poor people's campaign calls i've listened repeatedly week in and week out because i participate in their national calls and i work with their groups here in michigan i've heard repeatedly parents who got the full child tax credit and they could stop an electric shutoff or a water shutoff they could avoid being made homeless all of these ways in which their lives were improved and then it was ripped away from them and they felt as if they you know were made worse And it was very disheartening to hear, and I think politically, you put yourself in a worse position. So my question to you is, when Senator Manchin says you have to work to get this full benefit, the study that I read in the Washington Post by Ashley Nunes from R Street Institute in Harvard Law School says that that's going to exclude 1.5 million single parents, mostly women. and it's going to make them have to earn a wage outside of the poverty threshold to get out of poverty. And I just wonder, we have the highest rate of single parenthood in the world, some of the lowest wages, we can't get the one fair wage passed because of the filibuster. What can you do to help get the child tax credit fully refundable without a work requirement so we don't lose a lot of these voters in the midterms and Biden can keep his promise to help people in poverty?
3: Well, I completely agree with you. I mean, look—the child tax credit was the biggest anti-poverty measure that we've taken. It put money in the pockets of people who are poor, who are low income, and we need to uh, make that permanent. And we need to keep it fully refundable. Uh, and it's a—it's a real shame that we haven't been able to uh, to get that done. It's because we don't have enough votes in the the Senate on it, uh, but I am absolutely committed to that. It's it's about the one of the most effective things we can do uh, to, to reduce poverty in this country.
2: Do you think that we can hold on to the Senate this fall?
3: Yeah, I do. We've got some good candidates with Fetterman and Tim Ryan. I think state by state, we have a real fighting chance, but we're going to have to do more and be more aggressive on going after the uh, oil companies, on going after corporate uh, price gouging, on doing things to actually reduce prices.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. Dave, in Federal Way, Washington, got a quick question for Congressman Connor?
3: Yeah, Congressman Connor, I have another
4: elections question because an attorney that goes on a lot of liberal shows, I think he gave a surprise answer. He was asked, what if Kamala Harris is in the same position facing uh, states offering two alternate state slates of electors? And the, the answer was, look. If it's like the Trump administration and there's a lot of uh, corruption, you know, co-conspirators, if there's a lot of corruption, there's nothing anyone can do. So I'm like...
2: I so Dave, what's your question, uh, a, please? Yeah,
4: yeah, my question is, what does the Federal Elections Commission, what is their role? Do they have any oversight into what's valid uh, as far as an elector goes? Great
3: question. Now, The F.E.C. largely is about the uh, campaign finance and enforcing election laws. They don't uh, they won't get involved in something like who becomes president. What the Electoral Count Act would do if we passed it is say that every state has a law on its books right now, all 50 states, that the state legislature is bound to follow the popular vote winner in that state. And the Electoral Count Act would say if a state retroactively after the election wants to depart from the law on their books, that would trigger immediate judicial review. Now, people would say, well, the Supreme Court has Republican nominees. But the reality is all of the court cases that Trump filed failed. And so far, at least the courts have been willing to, uh, at least in 2020, uphold basic democracy. And so the, the, the fix to this is at least to kick it to the courts. Uh, As opposed to now, which just allows the state legislature to do whatever they
2: want. Bill, in Clifton, New Jersey, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
3: The
8: House does some great work, but it goes to die in the Senate like almost every day. I was wondering if there's ever been an accounting for all those bills that you've worked on, done research for your salaries, and uh, goes to waste. Uh, That must cost a lot of money, and the uh, Senate should, uh, you know, be made aware of that because it's it's ridiculous. Um, You know, they should be voting on within two weeks. They should have a Senate rule to vote on everything up or down within two weeks.
3: Bill, I completely agree with you. I mean, first of all, we need to have a clear communication of how many things the House has passed. Fifteen dollar wage, expanding Medicaid, uh, gun laws, prescription drugs, lowering the cost, child care, which have just died in the Senate. Uh, and there has to be some willingness, I think, on the Senate to have vote after vote after vote on it. Uh, Senator Schumer can call these votes up uh, so that people really understand uh, where where everyone stands and, and where the blocks are.
2: Tim in Shelby Township, Michigan, you are on the air with the Representative Connor.
8: After January 6th commission, are they going to put a listing out for every? Republican who fought in a treasonous way and committed sedition, every congressman and senator, so it goes to that district and points out that these guys are anti-American.
3: I think it's public knowledge of the people who were inciting the insurrection, and I, I think that that was exposed, obviously, by the January 6th committee. I mean, you had people asking Donald Trump for a pardon. You don't ask someone for a pardon if you don't think you may have criminal... Uh, exposure. Uh, and so th- that we, we do need to make sure that those uh, members of Congress who participated in the January 6th insurrection, that they're held accountable just like anyone else.
2: I've been watching this last night. All the news coverage was about, and a lot of the stuff in the committee was saying Mike Pence could determine the next president. But in fact, it was Mike Pence has to throw it to the House. Which means that the, there have to be members of the House collaborating with this. Do you think that you guys are going to be looking into that?
3: Absolutely, and the committee does. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the reality was that they had more of the delegation. The twenty, you know, because in the House you don't vote just by who has more more of the majority. Each state casts one vote. That's right. how the Constitution is written. And so, what the, the plan had to have the buy-in ultimately of uh, of McCarthy, if if. Uh, uh, for it to, it to work, and that there there needs to be more of a look it, investigation. I think the committee has looked into this, and this is why they wanted to subpoena McCarthy into what was the coordination between the House Republican and the White House, and whether there was some plan to have them overturn the election.
2: Yeah, it, it is truly breathtaking, Congressman Connor Thanks so much for dropping by. Love well being on. Thank you. I realize you're That's on the run fun. there with the Poor People's Campaign, and and thank you very much.
0: the way car buying should be
2: my op-ed today over at hartmanreport.com is titled forgiving student debt isn't giving a gift it's writing a wrong and I start out by quoting a, a right wing website. Well, actually, I start out by pointing out that Ilhan Omar of uh, Minnesota, the Democrat of Minnesota, Representative Omar, along with 55 colleagues, just sent a letter to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona wanting details of the coming forgiveness of student debt. I Googled student debt forgiveness. Actually, I duck, duck, it. And the first thing that popped up was a Fox News article by a woman saying, Uh, You know, if uh, if there are millions of Americans like me for whom debt forgiveness is an infuriating slap in the face after years of hard work and sacrifice. And I'm like, this to be charitable is BS. Forgiving student debt is not a slap at anybody. It is writing a moral wrong inflicted on Americans by Ronald Reagan and his morbidly rich Republican buddies. You know, prior to the Reagan revolution, pretty much anybody could go to college you could yeah, my mom put herself through michigan state university which is no slouch in terms of being a good college working as a summer lifeguard up in Charlevoix, michigan and she graduated magna cum laude she could do that and her you know her father was dead her mother was city manager for Charlevoix, not a wealthy family at all but that's that's what they did i talk about how my dad and louise's dad both you know went to college on the gi bill her dad ended up the assistant attorney general for the state of michigan We found that every dollar we invested in our young people coming back from World War II with the GI Bill, every dollar we invested produced a $7 return in additional tax revenue because those people made more money because they had an education. So, you know, for most of the history of the United States, Abraham Lincoln put into place free college, 73 land-grant universities across the United States where college was free or close to free, MSU was one of them. And, and Thomas Jefferson created the first free college in the United States, the University of Virginia, and he was very proud of the fact, to the day he died, in fact, it's, it's on his, uh, his tombstone, which he himself wrote, that, you know, that's more important than him being president. In fact, I, don't, I, don't, I believe his tombstone doesn't even mention his being president. I think it mentions that he wrote the Virginia uh, Declaration of Rights, that he founded the University of Virginia, and that he was the author of the Declaration of Independence, if I'm remembering correctly. So... You know, we have a long tradition of access to colleges in the United States. But what happened was, when Reagan came into office, 80% of college education was paid for by state and federal money. States picked up 65%, federal money picked up 15%. So only 20% was paid for by students through tuition. Reagan, uh, first of all, when he was governor in California, he ended free college in California, and he cut the budget for the University of California by 20% the amount of state money going to them. So they immediately had to jack up tuition. Then when he became president, he did the same thing to federal support for colleges. And so, you know, the legacy of Reaganism, the reason why we have a $1.7 trillion student debt overhang that's preventing people from starting families, buying homes, starting businesses, the whole reason for this is because we went from 80% of college costs being paid for by government when Reagan came into office, to only 20% of it being paid for by government now as a result of 40 years of Reaganomics. And it has gutted American education. It has gutted the American middle class. We've got this massive debt. And, you know, there's this debate even among liberals who are saying, oh, well, you know, you've got to, if you're going to uh, do away with student debt, you've got to make sure it doesn't go to rich people. Rich people don't have student debt, number one. And number, I mean, come on! Who's going to sign up for an eight percent student loan when they got enough money in the bank that they could just pay for it? So number one, that's a crazy notion. And number two, it it's not, you know. Yes, you know, a lot of people worked really hard to pay off their student loans. Good on them, but they shouldn't have had to in the first place. This is not a slap in their faces. This is acknowledging, you know, hey, you did good, but it's acknowledging that the people who couldn't pay off their student loans, typically for the, through no fault of their own, should never have had to have student loans in the first place. We are literally the only developed country in the world that has a student loan industry attached to our backs like a giant blood-sucking leech, just like we are the only developed country in the world that has a massive for-profit health insurance industry also attached to our back like a blood-sucking leech. THESE TWO THINGS, FRANKLY, I WOULD PUT THESE AT THE TOP OF THE DEMOCRATIC AGENDA. PEOPLE TALK ABOUT, YOU KNOW, HOW SHOULD DEMOCRATS MESSAGE? IT SHOULD BE HEALTHCARE FOR EVERYBODY AT NO COST, COLLEGE FOR EVERYBODY, AND TRADE SCHOOL FOR EVERYBODY AT NO COST. EVERY OTHER COUNTRY IN THE WORLD CAN DO THIS. CANADA DOES IT. ALL OF EUROPE DOES IT. COSTA RICA DOES IT, FOR GOD'S SAKE. THEY HAVE FREE HEALTHCARE AND FREE COLLEGE EDUCATION. WE CAN DO THIS, CAN'T WE? Anyhow, you can read the whole, the whole rant complete with all the links and sources and everything else. No commercials, no ads at all, over, and for free over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Forgiving Student Debt Isn't Giving a Gift, It's Writing a Wrong. Bob in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today?
8: There's still millions of people that didn't get their tax refunds from last year as a filing date this year. And it took me seven, eight months last year. I'm seven months in now. Right. And I don't know if uh, this administration has done anything to replace the workers that Trump had turned out of IRS and just caused such a back.
2: They have not backwash. been able to do that yet. Part of the, uh, uh, the uh, additional funding for the IRS and and also for the EPA and a couple of other agencies was included in the Build Back Better legislation. Uh, and oh, yeah. it got shot down. So the, right now the IRS is kind of stuck at the staffing that they have. They may be hiring, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it is just a disaster. And, in fact, my recollection is that the IRS is still headed up by a Donald Trump appointee. So, oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it is. So the problem is, of course, Republicans in the House and Senate Who don't want the IRS auditing rich people, and and therefore they're trying to kneecap it. Right. The bottom line is we need to get more Democrats elected. Bob, thanks a lot for the call. It was a good one. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind today?
5: I'm doing great, but I'll get better. Okay,
2: (laughs) me too. What's on your mind?
5: Yeah, story, Tom. I'm on my way into a popular department store. I think it was Monday. And there's a table with a couple of fellows gathering signatures. They're trying to recall George Gascone out here, the DA for L.A. County. I declined politely to sign their signature. I'm heading into the store. I start talking to this lovely older woman. We're talking liberal politics for a minute. And I mentioned that I called the Tom Hartman program. I've been calling for like 10 or 15 years. Tom, her eyes lit up. She loves you so much. Oh, um, that's sweet. And we, and no it was great it was it was it was and then she asked me my name and I said oh I'm Cliff from Santa Clarita and she re- she recognized my name from calling in it was such a wonderful delightful connection that we had that's Mark politics and and it's you, your program brings people together Tom well thank you Cliff
2: is that what you call about
5: anyways no I, water I'm calling about water Tom.
2: okay yeah you got um, a problem there read
5: about this. Well, we're in a mega drought. We've got the crisis out here. All the lakes and reservoirs are super low. The Colorado River is super precarious right now. My question to Tom is is desalination plants on large scale, are they feasible? And if they are feasible, why aren't they building them? And if they're not feasible, what are we going to do? they
2: are feasible and not feasible I you know for example okay. the gulf countries are using desalination plants uh, aggressively to provide themselves with fresh water I mean they're right on the gulf right but uh, but it okay. is brackish water or salty water but um, the problem is basically the way desalination works uh, you know there's the the uh, there's two main techniques one is to push it through a filter through a membrane that is uh, selectively permeable that that will not let the salt through but does let the water through the problem is with that is that it requires an enormous amount of pressure and you've got to continuously clean the filters that takes a lot of energy the other way to do it mm. is to boil water let it condense and catch the condensate that requires a lot of energy a lot of heat and so in the gulf states they can do that because they got free oil and they run them off oil uh, there is some mm. speculation that it could be done using solar collectors, that you know, a, a couple of acres of perhaps even floating solar collectors could generate enough electricity to run a desalination plant. The problem is getting it to scale, and I know that there's some, some demonstration projects being done in California around this, but I'm, I, I'm not all that familiar with the state of the art right now. But, uh, you know, an awful lot of emphasis instead is being put on simply recycling water. You've got numerous communities now in California and around the world that are recycling wastewater, both gray water and black water, into drinking water, into, into potable water. And uh, that, that may be, that's, that's certainly a better option for inland communities, for example, like in California, like in the valley. Uh, where, you know, getting the water from the ocean would be a problem to begin with, much less the desalination route. But that's everything I know about that, Cliff. Okay. All right. Thanks Thanks a lot for the call. Eric in Fountain Valley, California. Hey, Al. Eric, what's on your mind?
8: I wanted to get back to the topic about fascism in the United States. And apparently uh, more than 50% of people now are in agreement that it's coming. I'm kind of reaching that conclusion, too. But I think that what we're looking at is Republican Party trying to declare one-party rule oh, yeah. uh, in our country. And um, I don't think that's going to work for long. And particularly, I don't think it's going to work in the blue states. And I'm trying to envision, because I'm thinking, seeing this as a real possibility, how this is going to play out. And are the blue states going to, you know, secede? Are they going to? Are the red states going to try to occupy them? You know, I'm kind of like taking the next step and going, how's this actually going to play out in the United States?
2: Yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that, uh, Eric. I, I wrote a piece uh, a week or so ago on harbingerreport.com titled, uh, What Would a Fascist America Look Like? And, uh, you know, it would, it would not be that different from what we have right now, other than that you would suppress dissent, that uh, politics would become basically a charade, um that the media would end up owned by the by the fascists um you know i mean victor orban laid it out in hungary this is this is clearly what the republican party wants to do and and orban has largely turned hungary into a fascist state uh, i i think I, I agree bob i think it's or excuse me eric i think it's very very possible that this is going to happen here in the united states and it's absolutely what the republican party is working toward right now and it's very very troubling Eric, thanks a lot for the call. Bob in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Bob, what's up?
5: Hey, Tom, thanks for uh, taking my call. Sure. My uh, thought or question is regarding uh, forgiveness of student loans. Over the last nine years, my daughter has made over $42,000 in student loan payments uh, for a $40,000 loan principal. And I mean, she's she still crazy. owes over 30. It is, it is, and she still owes over $30,000. So this just feels like low-hanging fruit to me. Let's forgive. All student loans where the principal has already been paid, and you know they've already at the very least at the, at the very yeah yeah for for us it, it's like the low hanging fruit right at least I mean the grifters already got lots of uh, lots of interest money you know from those loans so they've already you know gotten well past the principal uh, anyway that was my thought is is just a it, it just seems like a like a real easy one you yeah. know um,
2: yeah the loan's a, have been paid it's a great start that that's a great start Bob thank you that's that's uh putting for putting that on my radar screen Larry in Los Angeles hey Larry just
9: for the record since Biden has been president production of oil crude oil in in the United States has actually gone up the news media won't say that because it messes up their narrative uh, trying to blame yeah it yeah, they messes up their propaganda they're trying to blame Biden for the uh, increase in in, uh, in gasoline but we've actually increased our production and anybody can look this can check this by going on the internet and looking up uh, oil production in the United States, and make sure you include 2022. Mm-hmm. You'll see that it's actually gone up. There's no reason for the prices to be as high as they are today.
3: Well, the, I, I a mainly, lot
2: of that oil, a lot of that increased oil production is being shipped overseas, as Congressman Connor pointed out in the last hour.
9: But even still, there's, there's no reason why our, we should be paying that higher gas price. No, now, I, but, uh, but uh, Bernie, like,
2: Bernie pointed out a couple days ago, the last time oil was $118 a barrel, which is where it was two days ago uh... the price of gasoline was three dollars and fif- three dollars and twenty-five cents a gallon if i'm remembering correctly
9: but everybody should check out the graphs the graphs show you that that we we don't have a shortage of oil that's one of the lies that, that our uh, right wing media is telling us Yeah, the um, i heard you talking the other day about um revenue mm-hmm. i'm not gonna have enough time to get to it but anyway if you look check revenues when republicans cut taxes they always go down if you look at the quarterly
2: revenues, don't look right. at the yearly Right, they initially the drop the and then they. Ronald and then Reagan. They, go ahead.
9: Yeah, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, Donald Trump—all saw revenue drop when they. When they the government.
2: Absolutely, and then and then it catches up because the economy grows. But yeah, absolutely, listening Larry. Listening
9: to Tom
5: Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive.
0: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset—hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
2: Chuck in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today?
10: ron reagan's 11th commandment for republicans which is thou shalt not speak ill of any fellow republicans are we seeing i
2: think i think you i think you hung up on yourself but uh so i'm not sure what your question was but uh, it sure looks like the gop is still doing that with the exception of liz cheney right now richard in huntsville texas hey richard what's on your mind today
4: first point is, and you may have touched on this, and I'm sorry, but I, I try to catch all your stuff, even though I record it, I don't catch up with all of it. But this so parallels, I mean, let's look at the big picture of the history of the United States. And I'm talking right now pre-Constitutional Convention. The Articles of Confederation wasn't working, and we did, the government didn't have any power, didn't have any teeth. And that's what I see going on right now with the inability to, uh, you know, to uh, enforce subpoenas. And uh, I think we need to revisit hardening power and revisit Supreme Court powers and alien sedition. You know, like Fox Fix News and hold accountable these collaborators of the will to destroy democracy. And I see Shay's Rebellion is just that was uh, that's so parallels January 6th and in that it, it's 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 bringing to mind. Um, I thought
2: Shay's Rebellion was a, a protest. Uh, you know, it was basically people, it was a protest against debt, wasn't it? I, I, I'd have to go back yeah. and i mixed mix them up in my brain, the different, the various rebellions at that time.
4: It was rebellion to pay in taxes, but it was state taxes, but yeah, and it uh-huh. was in Massachusetts, and it was, uh, you know, the Articles of Confederation, I mean, each state had only one vote, and Congress didn't have the power to tax, and, you uh-huh. know, you had states that were making deals with it with other countries and stuff like that, but but uh, you know, January sixth is going. I'm hoping it's going to be like Shay's Rebellion in that it's going to trigger people into realizing that this, the, the government now doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't have any power. Like I said, right. uh, when well, it's, when, been, uh, it's when, been
2: paralyzed by the Senate, basically.
4: Well, you can't even enforce the subpoenas. Okay, so that's yeah. my first point. And and like I said, you probably have touched on that before. I'm sorry if, if I have missed it and just brought it up and, and reiterated it. But anyway, when. <sighs> Two years ago, our worst fears was Trump escaping justice and no vaccines in time before before we die. Right. Um, now, that was two years ago. I mean, I longed for two years ago when that was our worst fears. Uh, I remember your discussions. You know, we on, uh, when you were talking about how what he's probably going to go to another country. I, I longed for two years ago when that was our worst fears. So this is my segue into the question: What do you see where we are two years from now?
2: I think a lot is going to depend on whether the Republicans take control of the House and Senate and whether the Trump faction retains control over the GOP. If both those things happen two years from now, in all probability, we will be in the last stages of American democracy and entering a fascist state. If the Republican Party overturns the Trump faction or if the Democrats hold on to the House and Senate in this election, I think we still have a chance. Uh, You know, if, if the GOP takes the House and Senate. Well, it's going to be a tough two years, Richard. It's going to be real tough. Lowell in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Lowell, what's on your mind today?
5: First, I wanted to remind you that there were five Democratic senators that helped block the public option back in 2009.
2: Yeah, Joe Lieberman Uh, was the deciding
5: vote, but you're right. Exactly. So just to remind you that, you know, and Tom Carper of that list of five is still in the Senate. So he's also a blocker. To the public option but anyway the California universal health care bill failed and one of the excuses they used was that Medicare didn't have a waiver for states to uh, you know have their own universal health care system and I'm I want to uh, find out how we can encourage the Democrats to pass that waiver since they've decided to go with paygo to block it at a federal level right. so maybe encourage right the way the waiver the waiver, the waiver the, for all
2: waiver. right the way the law is set up right now um because you know medicaid can be block granted to states um and then the states take the money and they distribute it however they want and that's why different states have different eligibility requirements for medicaid medicare on the other hand cannot be block granted to states medicare being a federal program Uh, basically connects the federal government to the individual receiving it so when you know when my Medicare uh, expenses are submitted to Medicare it's me and the federal government there's no state of Oregon in the middle and so the problem is it when California wanted to say okay we're going to stop You know, uh, uh, all of these various schemes, you know, insurance and everything else, we're going to stop all that and replace it all with Medicare for all. We're going to, the state is going to cover everybody's health expenses, and we're going to pay for that with a statewide tax. The problem that they encountered was that there are millions and millions of people in California who are on Medicare. And if those people stopped receiving Medicare payments because they're now on the state program, which is what the state uh, legislation would have done, then that lack of Medicare money coming into the state is a, a financial disaster for the state. The same thing happened to Vermont, by the way. A friend of mine, uh, a very dear friend of mine, was the uh, HEW secretary in Vermont when Peter Shumlin, the governor, got this passed in Vermont. And they tried to do single payer, and then they discovered that the Medicare law is written the way it is that, you know, all of a sudden the state was going to lose all their Medicare funding, and they just couldn't afford to do single payer. You're absolutely right, it requires a waiver. The federal government has to pass a law that uh, Medicare can give an individual state the ability to re- continue to receive Medicare payments and uh, and simply aggregate them into the state's policy or, or something, you know, there has to be a way to do that. And the problem is that, uh, in fact, that there has been legislation introduced several times in the House, and I believe it's passed the House of Representatives for Medicare waivers. It is consistently and regularly blocked by Republicans in the Senate. So that's where we're at. Oh, thank you. Okay, you're welcome, Lowell. Dexter in New York City. Hey, do, hey, Dexter, what's on your mind today?
10: Um, I was calling about H.R. 5905 Is the GI reorganization bill that would give GI benefits to descendants of um, World War, children of World War II veterans and spouses, um, and the Democrats haven't moved on it at all. I was wondering why it's still stuck in the Veterans Committee. They haven't moved on it at all. Uh huh. And therefore. I've got a bill It would give. GI benefits to descendants of World War II veterans who were denied the benefits when they came out.
2: Which is basically after World African-American War World War II veterans. Yeah, yeah.
10: that's what it yeah, the for. Oh,
2: that's the a, that's a good Congress, thing. That's a good
10: thing. And, uh, and it's stuck in um, Tocato's, chairman of committee. He, he doesn't want to move on it, it seems like. I
2: don't know what's going on. It's stuck on. in the Senate, you mean?
10: It's stuck in the Veterans Affairs Committee.
2: Uh, but you said McConnell, and uh, Mitch McConnell, he's a senator, oh, now. No, Mark McConnell, out of California. California oh, Chicago. okay. My apologies. And, but it was
10: introduced also by Senator uh, Warnock out of um, in Georgia, too, in but the they haven't moved on a bill. Yeah. It stuck, it just stuck in committee. I don't know why the Democrats are holding it up.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, is what's the name of the legislation? It's called, I think, the Wood? I know it's 5905, the Wooddid or
10: Sergeant Wooddid legislation is called, that, something like that, Sergeant Wooddid
2: legislation. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. It's it needs a memorable name, because I'm trying to figure out, you know, what should we say to people? If you're going to call your member of Congress and ask them to do something about this, do you say using bill numbers is tough? People don't remember those. Please do something about the legislation that would give GI Bill benefits to the descendants of World War II veterans who were denied it because of their race. Is that a good way was, to say uh, it? It
10: was, in, uh, it was highlighted on CBS uh, Nightly News. It was highlighted on the news, too. Uh-huh. News.
2: Cool. Yeah, well, people should call their members of Congress and, and advocate for it. Dexter, thanks for flagging that for me. I did not uh-huh. know about it. Uh, thank you. I do appreciate thanks. it. Thank you. Eileen in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eileen, what's on your mind today?
6: Yeah, Tom, I, I'm wondering about the conversation came up uh, recently here about the $250 million that uh, President Trump had received for his funding thing and since there's no accountability for that I'm kind of comparing it to like a GoFundMe page or something. If I Mm -hmm. do something like that and I get this income do I have to put it on my IRS, my income tax? Is that considered taxable income?
2: The way that Trump has done this is he created a super PAC that he's pouring the money into and super PACs, no, he doesn't have to pay taxes on that money. He would only have to pay taxes when he converts it to income. So, for example, when that super PAC paid Kimberly Guilfoyle $80,000 to to give a two-minute speech introducing her boyfriend, uh, Trump's Mm -hmm. son, that $80,000 that they paid to her becomes a taxable event, and she has to pay income tax on it. But the people donating to the super PAC don't get a tax deduction. And by the way, the amount of money that Trump has collected so far looks like it's closer to four hundred million dollars, or around three hundred eighty-five thousand uh, dollars, or three yeah three hundred eighty-five million dollars. Excuse me, um, two hundred and fifty million of it. The initial two hundred fifty million of it was when he was claiming that it was going to go into a fund to uh, fight election fraud and all that and investigate. Okay.
6: I'm wondering then, can I just open a fund for myself and call it a super PAC? I mean, you isn't that supposed to be for an election?
2: In theory, but no, it doesn't have to be for an election. That would be a campaign fund, it would be an election campaign fund. Stephen Colbert, back in the day when he was still doing the Colbert Report or whatever it was called, you know, did this amazing thing where he got this lawyer on and they, they opened a, a super PAC and he went through all the laws and how it all works and all this kind of stuff. And it was just breathtaking what a scam this thing is. We need to clean this up, Eileen. We really need to. Eileen, thank you for the call. Jack in Los Angeles. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind today?
7: Professor Hartman, I first long-time listener, first-time caller. Well, thank you, Jack. I had to call you. Thank you for the tremendous information that you and free speech disseminate every day. You are the only news source, besides my deceased father, That mentioned that California changed their gun laws with the emergence of the Black Panther Party.
2: Oh, yeah. It's a a hell of a story, too, isn't it? I
7: have never heard anyone else mention that but you. Yeah. I will listen until I die. I will donate to your station until I die. Well, thank you, Jack. And and I had one quick thing because you, Mm -hmm. the information is so pertinent. I don't know if you're aware. In nineteen seventy three there was a movie that was produced during the black exploitation era, you know, like yeah. the movies that came out Super Fly and Shaft. Yeah, I remember. There was a movie, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Are you I familiar have, with
2: that? I'm not familiar with it.
7: Okay, I want you to Google it, Professor. Uh, the movie was so frightening to the establishment because of the premise of the movie. A black man trained by the CIA came back to the neighborhood and developed an underground army that they pulled the movie from the theater. Oh, interesting. It's called The Spook Who Sat By the Door.
2: I'll have to check it out.
7: But I will watch you forever. My mother's 93. You are the only news source that we religiously watch. I want to thank you for everything.
2: Thank you, Jack. Thanks for your kind words. And please say hi to your mother for me. Okay, thank you. Good talking to you, thank you. Glenn in uh, Kalama, Washington. Hey, Glenn, what's on your mind today?
8: The Nationalization of the oil industry. Is that idea a fascist idea, a communist idea, or a socialist idea?
2: If if none of those, what is it? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, Norway has largely nationalized their oil industry and they're not a fascist nor a socialist country. Uh, You could argue that they're democratic socialist. but you know the the sovereign wealth front for their country is huge. It's why they have such a high standard of living. Um, Alaska semi-nationalized the oil industry, you know, and created the Alaska Permanent Fund, so everybody in Alaska gets a couple thousand dollars every literally every man, woman, and child in the state every year. Um, there are things like that that we could do. I mean, that, that wasn't full nationalization. That was basically just charging a fee. Um, you know, we could claim that the oil in the United States is, is U.S. property, and we could change, we could raise royalties on it. And that's something that could probably be done administratively. Um, there are a lot of ways to go on that, Glenn. And yeah, what about a cooperative? Uh, you know, cooperatives are possible. I mean, it, it, it would be a big lift because, of course, the oil industry has a lot of money and a lot of political power, and they would yell and scream and call it communism. I guarantee you that. And and therefore, I I don't think it's a fight that's really worth having, but it's something that we should keep in our back pocket. Glenn, thanks a lot for the call. David in Fresno. Hey, David, what's up?
8: Hi, Tom. we enjoy your program so much. Thank you. Um, I was wanting to talk a little bit about the student loan crisis. Um, I I grew up in a small town in Michigan uh, near Kalamazoo in the the early uh, 60s, or I went to college and my mother worked at a factory, Uh, my father had died, and I was able to go through the University of Michigan and also a year at the University of Madrid, and I I thank you for your analysis of the Reagan uh, contribution to this. My theory is that we we were able to educate several uh, or many working-class people, and from that we had the 60s sort of a cultural revolution and i think that scared the work i think it scared the power elite
2: oh it absolutely did russell they kirk said, wrote a book about this in 51 the conservative mind predicting essentially the 60s and saying that you know when that happens when the young people and the black people and the women rise up that's when the government has to crack down and defund the middle class and that was reagan's mandate reagan Reaganism has moved 50 trillion dollars out of the pockets of the middle class, the American working class and into the pockets of the top 1%. And they did it under the rubric of it's going to ensure social stability.
8: That's fascinating. I really appreciate yeah. having that information. Yeah, no, it's I had it's, an argument with my I had an argument with my cousin from Arkansas saying I couldn't go to the University of Michigan today. Oh yeah, he absolutely. Said, oh yes, you just have to, yes, have to
2: get a job, and you could do it. I said, no, I couldn't. Yeah, get a job as a, as a as a you know a, a well paid job. That would be the only way to do it. Yeah, David, spot on. Reagan did gut education in the United States.
5: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.